Nubian gods and goddesses. T.B.Y.E.D. in the living room. Black living room talk. Back for another reading. Part 3. Introduction. Of the Racist Mind. By Raphael S. Ezekiel. The last time I read. We were talking about the young women and what they seem to play, you know, a more active role, their role. He was talking about their role in the skinhead youth gangs. He said, young women seem to play a more active role in the skinhead youth gangs than in the traditional clans. If most of the members are men, from what economic level do they come? Little objective work has been accomplished on this question. My initial field research in Detroit took place among young men from a very poor sector of the white population. And I assumed as field work broadened that I was looking at a movement of people who were struggling economically. My later observations seemed in line with that presumption. Although I seldom saw again the flat out poverty of the Detroit racist, in general, I seemed to be looking at blue-collar workers, some of them skilled, and people of modest, middle-class standing. There was lots of variation. At rallies and in conversation, leaders referred to their following as working people with little money. They were jealous of the resources of the left. Observers have trended to assume that Klansmen and Nazis are fairly poor, but this may not be the case. James Ahoe of Idaho State University has done the only scientific work that I know of in this regard, and the extremists he has studied come from a representative slice of American society. Leonard Zeskind of CDR, whom I consider the most astute observer of the movement, also sees movement membership as directly reflecting general American society. Membership in the uniformed groups may draw more heavily from the less moneyed people with businesses or careers which shy away from visible identification with notorious groups. Behind that frontline group are the Christian patriots who probably include many more from the middle classes. And behind all of these, there are the sympathizers who regularly send in contributions and subscribe to movement publications. These legions are white Americans representing every economic level, distinct only in that they do not identify with the values to which the national majority pays at, at least lip service. Movement members are not impressed by the majority's verbalization of non-racist values. They believe that most white Americans agree with them at a gut level and can be brought into alignment with them as circumstances worsen. History will turn other whites into their allies. At the same time, they feel a good deal of scorn for the white masses. The average white person today, they feel, is a vegetable, a dupe 
tied to the boob tube. Deep down, there is a connection between the movement and the white public, they feel. They are correct, in my estimation. But the real question is, what else that average white American has in his or her psyche, in addition to the primitive constructs that are shared with the militants? When I began talking to racists, I expected to find that economic fears played a central role. It makes sense to me that economic facts can drive history. I am less used to thinking of ideas as having profound power, and I was surprised to gradually understand that the agreement on basic ideas is the glue that holds the movement together, that the ideas are important to the members. The white racist movement is about an idea. I had thought that there might be emotional factors that one could find at the center, as well as economic. I think the reader will see some similarities among the members and their sense of self as isolate and threatened. Isolate and threatened. But there is no simple and overpowering psychological explanation. There are many ways to be a racist, just as there are many ways to be a nurse or a professor or a grocer. I have met members who were dependent and nasty. I also have met men who strongly valued independence, mavericks who bridled at conformity. Readers may or may not feel by the end of these selections that they see a psychological base to the movement. With hesitation, I will suggest that I hear one voice repeatedly, a voice that puts me in mind of the very early teenager, a rebellious youngster, very frightened about himself, utterly self-absorbed, with one or two ideas in his head. This does not mean that we are dealing with a harmless, misunderstood kid. Lots of members are harmless. The movement is not, is not and does not mean to be. Its goal is power and domination. Its history, rhetoric, and analysis direct it into violence. Its language draws to it people who will be capable of violence, along with many other people. Without periodically re-earning its reputation for violence, the movement would disappear. Violence is a key to understanding the multiple meanings of the movement for different kinds of members. The six blind men of fable who fill different parts of the elephant variously report the, to be shaped like a snake or like a tree and so on. De- depending on which part of the elephant they touch, the white racist movement is reported in baffling, bafflingly different forms for similar reasons. A journalist sent to cover a killing reports a murder gang, a feature writer speaking at length with the parents of a jailed member reports an assembly of economically deprived peasants straining for hope. The movement holds many different people who are living in many different worlds. All are linked by a central set of beliefs and by adherence to certain leaders who closely share beliefs.
Excuse me, I had to look out the window and see whose car that was. <laughs> okay. Four kinds of membership can be identified if we look at degrees of involvement in issues of self-control. The national leader and his lieutenants are men with a lifetime of involvement whose lives are centered on their work as organizers and who keep grounds, who keep groups alive. Violence for them is the hidden subtext, as is sex in many other settings. There must always be the almost unspoken possibility. The organizational dress reinforces the message. The code of secrecy emphasizes it. The hint, the wink, tell the media that the gathering or the march must be covered. Violence is news. The potential for violence can't be ignored. The possibility of violence is the bait that makes the organization visible and that draws members. Much more loosely connected than the leaders and cadre are the ordinary followers, the ordinary members. Most are by, by no means fanatical. Most have no wish at all to be harmed or to spend time in prison or to lose their jobs. More than that, they have no serious wish to personally harm some non-white person. They do, however, like the feeling of being part of a serious endeavor and the Klan group or the Nazi group because it does hold the possibility of violence is a serious group. So it is a thrill to have the card in their pockets but they don't want anything dangerous to happen near them. And people drop out fast when police investigations begin. A third kind of person in the movement is the loose cannon, the unpredictable fella who gets drawn in by the language and the history. The fella who doesn't really get the picture that one is supposed to take everything with a grain of salt and cover his own ass. The loose cannon is tender, waiting for the spark. He catches fire and does his act, is caught and is put away, but the movement gains immeasurably from his behavior. He will be disavowed by the leadership and the ordinary members, but in fact, his action is indispensable as it keeps alive the aura. The movement can be violent. A fourth kind of person in the movement is the potential terrorist, the guerrilla. He believes the ideology literally, word for word. There is an enemy. The enemy is evil. He believes the, it, the ideology because he wants it. He wants the grounds for radical action. He must have radical action. Violence is the language in which he can speak his message. His spirit needs the comradeship of the tight terrorist cell. For the casual member... The movement is similar in many ways to alternative social gap groupings to which he might belong. The hint of violence is dramatic, but not much is happening and membership doesn't transform his life. For the member who stays in more than a year or so, the group has much more defined meaning. The ideology has become very large in his mental life. A great deal of his thought has to do with the conspiracies and seeing the hidden meaning of events and brooding about the future. The senior members, very long-time members, cadre, leaders, feel thoroughly embedded within a framework. The movement is the world. The progress of the multiple racist organizations is minutely followed. 
their struggles with the authorities meticulously ended, the rise and fall of their competitive status endlessly tracked. Finally, the potential terrorists construct tiny alternative structures within the surface within the surface ones. Underground cells, secret small gangs form periodically here and there, the clan within the clan, as knowing leaders may call it. Absolute secrecy is sought, but whispers percolate up into the everyday movement. Public, visible national leaders may become fairly sure such a cell is being formed and work to be able to seem unaware of it while lending full moral support. For the national leader, the terrorist cell, like the Loose Cannons Act, is lifeblood, the, the vital inf- infusion of violence is possibility that ensures the reputation. Much more than the Loose Cannons Act, however, the Underground Sales Acts can endanger others, especially leaders. Prison walls await. And all these degrees of membership and all these forms of involvement, violence plays its particular role as does the ideology, the set of beliefs. The vital function of the movement is to keep the beliefs in an active state. The periodic gatherings insistently repeat the beliefs and give them form, drench them in the language of blood, and the movement, by providing that incessantly recharged machinery, makes sure that there is a settling that will draw, will inspirit, will inspirit the ordinary member, the senior member, the loose cannon, and the terrorist. Those who need meaning for their lives will find it here. Those who need the spark that will let them explode will find it here. Those who need the framework in which to live conspiracy or violence will find it here. The elephant is many things. The movement tries out new forms and new circumstances. In 1993 and 1994, a number of prominent leaders began to preach leaderless resistance. The movement should abandon parades for, ex- for action, but action should be carried out by very small cells in which no one knows more than he must about the organization as a whole. The most recent of the movement's fictionalized versions of the desired future the novel Hunter, by the leader of a faction called the National Alliance, describes a lone white racist assassin whose murders of interracial couples and of integrationist leaders set an example so dramatic that hundreds of other lone whites carry out spontaneous assassinations along the same lines, without the need for organizational ties. This suggest a high level of frustration in the white racist movement at the moment, a feeling that old forms have not worked, and an emerging organizational climate that is more likely to attract and nurture potential terrorists. In a less dramatic development, the movement, especially its Christian patriot sector, is hitchhiking on gun enthusiasts' fears of legal restrictions, just as it hitchhiked on farmers' fears during the farm foreclosures crisis of the 1980s. So-called militias have sprung up in a number of states designed to prevent government seizure 
of privately owned weapons. Some of these militias, especially in the Northwest, have been organized by longtime lieutenants of Aryan nations and other white racist groups. While organizations in the white race movement come and go, the basic themes are constant. The particular members and leaders and groups that appear in these pages may or may not be on the scene in 10 years, but others much like them will be. The people I present here are quite real. The names are not, unless otherwise noted. The interviews were tape recorded and transcribed. The quotations in the chapters based on interviews, parts 2 and 3, are exact. I did not tape record, on the other hand, while observing gatherings. I took almost verbatim notes during speeches and typed them up the same day. The quotes in the chapters about gatherings, part 1, include many of the exact words of the speakers, but necessarily leave out many words. The reader can take those quotations as definitely true to the intended meaning of the speaker and largely accurate, but not a transcription. And I want to make a comment. Gatherings will be the first chapter that I'm going to be reading after I get out of this introduction. The actual field work began when I learned that a Nazi bookstore had opened in Detroit and I visited it. My interest was aroused by what I saw. As later chapters detail, I made connections with that group and for about three years observed them and did in-depth interviews with the members of the group. I was increasingly aware of differences between the leader of that group and his members and decided to try to interview national leaders in the racist movement. An initial contact with Robert Miles in Michigan, a major racist figure recently deceased, was highly fruitful. We talked many times at his farm 40 miles northwest of Detroit and he helped me he helped me assemble a list of readers I will hope to interview. Miles suggested early on that I attend the Klan's Labor Day rally at Stone Mountain, Stone Mountain, Georgia. Stone Mountain, Georgia. My comment, Stone Mountain, Georgia, where our, uh, in fact, leader, Grand Master Jay, went to here back in, was it, around in July, to confront them about when they said that they were to they were going to just start shooting black people. So he went to Stone Martin, Georgia, at the birthplace. That is the birthplace of the KKK. So anyway, Miles suggested early on that I attend the Klan's Labor Day rally at Stone Martin, Georgia, which opened a contact with additional national leaders. During the next few years. I made a series of visits to a number of national leaders and periodically was able to make observations at racist gatherings. The leader interviews and the observations took place in the South, the Midwest, the Northwest, and California. He said, the leader, the leader interviews and the observations took place in the South, the Midwest, the Northwest, and California. I have had many conversations at gatherings 
And when visiting leaders with their lieutenants and members, these have helped lend depth. Periodically, I have revisited respondents from the Detroit group. Most recently, I have been doing a fair amount of observation with the Klan group in Michigan. In my work, I, I am trying to understand the meaning that a person's activity has in that person's life. I listen to words, and they tell me a lot. I think about what has not been said. I think about patterns. Over time, my understanding of this movement has changed. The initial work in Detroit spoke loudly to me of the neediness of the young members as individuals. As I moved on to the broader inquiries, the listening and looking at gatherings, the interviews with leaders, I saw more clearly that we were dealing with a movement, even if its local appearance seemed more like a game. In constructing this book, I reversed the sequence of the research. Part one of the book presents three of the gatherings that I witnessed. The reader can listen to the words of the speeches and feel the emotions of the crowd as well as visit a trial. We, met, we meet national leaders in part two. I present three of eight or ten whom I have come to know well. The three case studies present three distinct and important styles. Part three presents the Detroit group, the university's location only 35 miles away, allow visits two or three times a week and interviewing late into the night. Here are detailed portraits from one setting. The culture and the personalities we look at recur at many places in the movement. I hope that this picture of one group will not, will not long stand alone, that I or others can soon add similar case histories from other groups illuminating additional styles. In the book, I usually employ the term white racist, but occasionally employ the term racist. Let me say, for clarity, that there is no analysis here of any group but the extremists who come out of white American culture. One further point about language, the movement includes few women, so I usually employ the masculine form of pronouns. Several terms must be explained. Speakers refer to the Northwest Republic. Movement leaders advocate the migration of white races to the Northwestern United States and the adjoining parts of Canada, where they might become a majority and set up a white world separate from the rest of the country. Speakers rail at Zog, the Zionist occupation government. This is a label for the group that they believe truly controls and governs America. The conspiratorial cabal of Jews and their flunkies. People sometimes ask me why I have studied these groups. My previous book grew from similarly depth-oriented interviews with African-American men and women who lived on a small inner-city street in Detroit. There, too, I wanted to understand the meaning of lives. The issue of race is absolutely central to American life. Our lives are deeply affected by the conceptions that segments of our society have of one another and by the institutions that have grown up over the years to embody these conceptions. It's 
it is necessary to explore these conceptions. The militant racist groups are worth studying in their own right. They have impact, but they are especially worth study because they let us see white racism in its unfiltered, unguarded form. The history, the experience, and the cultural lore that operate on the white races operate on each white American. And each of us, regardless of origin, has internalized at least a part of the set of beliefs and emotions that predominate in the white races. We who are mostly non-racist, whose minds and spirits are 70 or 80 percent non-racist, cannot act in a way that can be trusted until we have become familiar with our own inner parts that do not speak in a racist voice. We need to come to know our own racism so that it does not trip us when we are trying to behave responsibly. The energy we have spent in hiding that part of ourselves from our awareness is energy we can use and trustworthy acts to build coalitions. Finally, this book presents detailed portraits in which white racist appears individuals with real lives. It would be simpler and pointless to simply reinforce the reader's stereotypes and pander to the reader's pre-existing images. It takes no effort to speak glibly about a stereotype. Nothing more befogs the critical relationship of wealth, power, poverty, and the common good than the racism of our culture. We need desperately to understand that racism at a deep level we need desperately to understand that racism at a deep level. One piece of that process, pointless without learning economics and history, but vital to understanding them, is to comprehend the experienced world of the people who are involved. That is much the task of this book. To, pre to present white racists as humans is not to approve their ideas or or their actions but to picture them only in stereotype is to foolishly deny ourselves knowledge effective action to combat racism requires honest inquiry so that is the final part of the introduction and the next time I read I will be starting with Part one of gatherings. I know that was a long introduction, but I wanted to read the introduction to you so that you could understand what this book is about in its totality about the racist mind. And in it, it is vital that you understand it so that the only way to understand something is to understand it and to get into it. And not to just understand it or think you have an understanding of it on its surface. So, as the author stated, that the quotes in the chapters about gatherings, you won't see them. But I will be, as I read, I will make reference to them, wherever they are. And so he said that. The quotes in the chapters about gatherings, which is part one that I will be starting with, include many of the exact words of the speakers, but necessarily leave out many words. The readers can take those quotations as definitely true 
to the intended meaning of the speaker and largely accurate, but not a transcription. So I will be back sooner than you think to read The Racist Mind, Part 1, Gatherings by Raphael S. Ezekiel this week. Peace, love, and light.